Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1967 film Bonnie and Clyde. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Thanks. Barrett, um, I was I was just saying before we started recording, I was uh, I'd never seen this movie. This is a movie that I've been aware of forever. Um, and I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. I was expecting this movie to be homework for some reason. I think because I just had never seen it and I was and I I watched it twice this week and I I thought it was great. I thought it was great in all kinds of surprising ways and expected ways. Um, this one was, this was, and, and it was very fun too. In a, you know, I, again, I, I expected it to just be this kind of dark downward spiral um, because I think anybody who sees this movie knows how it ends. Mm-hmm. So you're, um, but I was, I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. Let's start. What is your history with this film? Is this something you you've seen uh, a long time ago? Is this something you've come to? Yeah, more it's, it's been, a, it's been a while. It's probably been about 10 years. Another one of those films where, you know, I kind of, knew, I knew about it for a long time and then I finally got around to watching it on, on DVD. But I, I honestly remembered so little of it that I had forgotten how funny it is. And I had kind of forgotten um, that, that, well, we'll talk about this, that it takes a different approach to the genre than Hollywood had, had seen before. And of course, we came to it from Gun Crazy, which doesn't have a lot of laughs in it. So it doesn't, watching Gun Crazy as kind of one of the progenitors of this film doesn't really set you quite up for what, what's actually going on here. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a part of it is I was like, oh, we're going to watch like a more modern, more violent version of Gun Crazy. And then um, as much as I liked Gun Crazy, like this is this is so far a more like this film has so much more going on um, in terms of its uh, like you said, I, I was uh, little things like the first time they go rob a bank and then it's it's a failed bank. And I'm like. Oh, that's that's too funny. Um, and and uh, and we'll talk about the role of humor in this because I think um, the Pauline Kael piece she makes a, a big point about how this how this plays in. Um, the other part for me is reading um, Thomas Harris's Pictures at a Revolution. I mean, this is one of the central movies of that uh, that book, which looks at the the year 1967 as this kind of pivotal moment um i want to go back and reread that book now because i it's funny reading that book not having seen the actual movie one of the movies he's talking about um i think i'll get much more out of that book a second time as i as i now have a a better sense of what this movie is yeah i went back and reread some of the sections from that from that book and it really was fun as i had read it the summer as you know and then to go to to watch the film and go back to it and of course, one of the fun things you've already made the mention of Pauline Kael's review, which I think we'll talk more about. That's uh, just as the film is a watershed film, Kael's review is a watershed review. But one of the things I got out of Harris's book is that is that Kael does something very disingenuous in the review. She says that she's taking a guess about the intentions of the, of the writer authors of the screenplay, but in fact, she had taken them to lunch uh, and picked their brains, and so she knew stuff that they had thought about putting in the film that they took out. So she's just so interesting to read I, it's one of those instances where i love the movie because the movie also leads to a really fantastic review well okay that's interesting because we've had other movies that we've talked about where i where i have this big divide of like well do we talk about the form or the content this one it's like do we talk about the criticism around it because it's really interesting yeah. uh and we can have a whole conversation about that and never talk about the movie so i want to try to balance yeah. balance it out because the movie is is worthy uh, you know even aside from the criticism the movie's very interesting it's very entertaining it's very thought-provoking so i want to make sure to sort of do do both of those things um before and we'll start with criticism but before we get into that i'm kind of curious um is a lot of the movies we watch we you know i i I find myself asking about the director up front i keep forgetting that arthur penn is the director of this movie like i think about all i think about all the other discourse around the movie i think about warren Beatty and his role in this movie um is Arthur Penn a filmmaker that you think much about? Or, I mean, do you think about this as a Penn movie, a Warren Beatty movie? Yeah, how do you how do you position him in terms of this movie? Yeah, I, I, I don't think much about Penn, in, in part because I haven't seen a lot of his films, in part because he's never been, um, he's never been one of the stars of the Artur theory. But, you know, one of the resources I use for film, and I don't think we've talked much about this, um, Sam, is David Thompson's Biographical Dictionary of Film, 
Uh, Thompson's a very idiosyncratic critic with whom I disagree about half the time, if not more. But he he's really a big Arthur Penn fan. It's, it's pretty remarkable. He's very disappointed what happens in the second part of Arthur Penn's career. Uh, Penn directed a couple of really good movies that are at least well-known movies. He directed The Miracle Worker. Uh, which was uh, which was a fairly groundbreaking film. Uh, he actually had another Oscar nomination along with this film for uh, Alice's Restaurant. Uh, the first Arthur Penn film I ever saw is um, it was Dustin Hoffman in Little Big Man, which was one of the earlier films that was around 1970 to kind of address Native American uh, issues. So he had a he also directed Brando in the in the Missouri Breaks. So he had a, a pretty significant career in the 60s and early 70s. And then he just kind of, he just kind of faded away. Um, but I guess in many ways, I think of this as a Beatty film, not only because Beatty is the star, but Beatty produced. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things that this film, one of the things this film marks is a couple of big transitions in Hollywood, transition away from the Hayes Code uh, as we move to the, uh, the rating system. Uh, and um, move away from the big studios. The, the big studio system kind of fell apart for the next 15 years until it kind of reassembled itself in, in the 80s. And so, oh, and one other thing, Arthur Penn and Beatty had previously made a, uh, a film, which I have not seen, has a very poor reputation called Mickey One. Uh, and even Beatty and Penn didn't think much of it. But it was another new wave influenced film and the important thing about that film was that Penn and Beatty discovered that they really liked working together because they enjoyed arguing. And they would actually create opportunities to argue about almost anything. And that really kind of fueled the creative energy of, uh, of Bonnie and Clyde, the fact that they had this kind of deliberately contentious relationship in which they would often bring out the best in each other by arguing all kinds of things, uh, creating arguments just in order to have an argument for the stimulation. Yeah, I mean that's one of one of my takeaways from the Harris book is the role that that Beatty plays in this, you know, in in, in the making of this movie. So I I associate it with him. It was also interesting to see this because you know, as a product of my age, like Warren Beatty's always been sort of an, an older actor. I mean, I've seen him in, in movies. He's not in a lot of movies, but I've seen him in things. Um, but I've never really seen like, like, uh, the sort of young Warren Beatty. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting to, to, to see sort of what's so attractive about him as an actor. I mean, he is a very attractive person, but there is something, um, uh, beyond his looks that is very charismatic in this movie and 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 um and it, it's it's interesting to look at Clyde's charisma but also like the broken parts of Clyde like you can see both of those things um and it's why I love that he has the the limp from the toes because it it it, it is it's it's like one of the first physical things you notice about him even before he says that it's like he's moving around kind of funny um, but he, but he still at the same times is just sort of dripping with charisma and you, and, and he can talk his way even without almost trying from like casing a car he's about to steal to like taking somebody out for a soda, you know? And it's like, it's like, oh, I buy it. I totally buy it. Um, so it, it was fun to see kind of the, you know, early Beatty in that way. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the toe things, Sam, because, you know, not only does that give him that distinctive limp, but even the story of how he cut off, how he chopped off the toes and a week later he gets paroled. Right. First of all, it's very funny because it's ironic, but it also says something about Clyde, right? Because he's got this weird combination of an easy facility at doing things, and yet he's kind of a bumbler. Uh, and, and, and having those two qualities, which is one of the things that's, of course, very different about this film from a lot of other crime films uh, that came before it, uh, that he really he is an actor really is able to pull uh, is able to pull that off. Yeah, that's interesting, because I was thinking about like other versions of crime films, uh, heist films, things like that. It's often about like how professional these people are and it's like they're 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 criminals but like they're the best you know this is the best safe cracker and this is the best entry guy and this is the best wheel man and it's like this is not a movie about those folks this is a movie about people who sort of almost fell backwards into this as their as their profession i mean this seems closer to me to something like a like a tarantino movie like reservoir dogs where where there you're seeing like here are these thieves 
but they're also um but those are like professional thieves but you're also seeing like the human side of them things like that where these are these are amateurs who are um where where I mean even even okay even the idea that they rob banks is almost accidental like like he says it and and then like it's like that wills it into existence like they had been knocking over grocery stores and things like that but when he says we rob banks the next thing hard cut to i guess we're gonna rob a bank because we say we rob banks well i uh, i i think you're spot on with the connection to tarantino you, you went to reservoir dogs i go to pulp fiction as well I mean, I think the way that Tarantino navigates those those different tonalities, I think he definitely learned that from something like 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 Bonnie and Clyde. Um, yeah, the, the the other thing about you know we rob banks and and they're no they're actually worse at robbing banks I think than even uh, Annie Starr and uh, uh, was in, uh, in in Going Crazy. But yeah, I mean, I think what what are the one of the many things this film is about right is about the cult of celebrity. It's like you know we have in this day we have celebrities who are known for being known not because of anything they've actually done. They're just known because they're famous people. Um, and I think this is exactly what Bonnie and Clyde are, do, are doing in this film. And to a certain extent, they did that in real life, right? She really sent those poems into the papers and they po they actually posed with these pictures of, them of themselves. And so they were, they were not so much criminals as people playing criminals. And so in a sense, that's what the film kind of, that, that, they're, they're so ripe for being filmed because they already were performers. And that's exactly what the film captures. Okay, so you just you just hit on the biggest thing, which is, um, and we can get into. I want to get into some of the 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 critical stuff, contemporary critical stuff, but it's so interesting because I read that stuff and it's all about violence and the juxtaposition of comedy and violence, and and is that you know what Kale talks a lot about that. What's interesting is I'm reading this stuff from the '60s, and it's like, oh my goodness, this is this is a movie about the internet. Like this is, I mean, obviously it didn't exist then, but it's, it's what makes this movie great is you can bring it to 20. If you told me this movie came out in 2022, I would believe it. I would believe like, Oh, what they're doing is saying, can we, can we take the idea of being Instagram famous and set it in 1932? Like, how would you do that? What would be the, the corollaries to those things? And it reads almost perfectly even though this is a movie from 1967, like I, it, it felt like a fresh contemporary thing. Um, and we can get into that, but, but what, what was interesting is I read another review from later on that was critical of the, of the 67 reviews saying, Oh, this movie's all about Vietnam. And like, how are, how are people not? And it's like, and I read that and I'm like, Oh, I buy that argument. But the person writing that in whatever year is like, you don't know about the internet yet. It's like, this is what this is really about. And it makes me wonder like, like this taps in then clearly to something uh, that's, that is either at its core human or at its core American or something, because it, this story translates this, not just the story, the movie translates over the course of the last you know, nearly 60 years. It's kind of amazing. You know, and, and what you're saying, Sam, kind of lines up really nicely with um, uh, Roger Ebert's review, um, which which is really very prescient, right? And, and, and Ebert says, first of all, he says it's the best film of the year, uh, did not get best film that year, and he didn't know that, in the heat of the night got it. Um, but he also says, very, again, presciently, that uh, it's a landmark, and Years from now, he says this may be the definitive film of the 1960s. But what I want, the real, I want to connect that with what you're saying, though, because what he also says is the fact that the story is set 35 years ago doesn't mean a thing. It has to be set sometime, but it was made now, and it's about us. Yes, I, I just love that idea that here's a film looking back 35 years, and now we can look back 55 years and say this is still a film that actually speaks to something about the nature of our society, uh, the nature of how we think about uh, about dealing with a whole bunch of issues, including celebrity. How do we present ourselves? How do we read about ourselves? How do so we so let, let's take a step back, though, um, because in the Harris book, and he's not, I mean, everybody says this about this film, about how groundbreaking this movie is in terms of, it's one of the stepping stones to the new Hollywood of the, the 1970s. Um, so beyond being just sort of production code obliterating, um, what's new about this film? Well, I certainly think I mean, uh, this is going to touch on the code a little bit, but I certainly think um, 
the fact that there's real, well, of course, it's not real blood, but the fact that there's quote unquote real blood. I mean, the film was kind of groundbreaking in terms of those sort of special effects. Uh, and there's no, there's no, there's no glamour to those killings. Um, and, and Kale makes this a big point in her, in her review as well, that it's a film that makes us uncomfortable about violence and that's what it's supposed to do. So even that first murder, you know, here you are in the middle of it's a, uh, the first bank robbery and the first murder. Here you are in the middle of what looks to be kind of a Keystone cop scene, right? And you got this guy hanging on the car and you're like, oh yeah, that's the way these things go. And all of a sudden in a shot that's, that's <laughs> recollecting of uh, Battleship Potemkin, uh, all, all of a sudden you get this guy shot in the face. And it's, it's, it's all of a sudden it's deadly serious. And I think those, that, that shift of tones, is, that is really groundbreaking. The, the ability of the audience or asking the audience to, on the, one, on the one hand, be laughing and entertained, and on the other hand, to be genuinely horrified. Uh, Kale, Kale tells a story about watching the film with an audience and a woman in a robe of her keeps saying, oh, it's a comedy. It's a comedy. And then realizing that it actually it isn't. So I think that's groundbreaking. But then I think, um, you know, the, the shootout, uh, the, the use of all the squibs to create the blood, the slow motion, um, and even, even to a certain extent, the editing. I mean, Hollywood wasn't really editing. I mean, that's, that's editing that Penn and his editor picked up from the new wave. So I even think editing the film the way that they edit it is is ground is groundbreaking. So those, yeah, there, those are a few of the things. Yeah, there's a scene. Thinking about like the sort of the effects of the violence. There's a scene towards the very beginning of the movie when he's teaching Bonnie to shoot, and she's shooting at the tire, and he says, "Make it spin." Okay, and and I was thinking about that because I mean, partially what that that echoes then at the end, their bodies are spinning as they're getting shot by bullets, and it's like so he's saying from the very beginning, when these things hit things, they do something, mm. um, and they 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 affect the motion of the world around it, and um, and I loved that little moment of of him. I mean, it, it it's a throwaway moment; you don't need to have that in there. But when I got to the end, I I absolutely thought about her shooting the tire and, and making it spin and them getting excited that you hit the tire and it moves and then what that does to a body when it hits it i thought that was i thought i, I love that little piece setting up the other yeah. um so this along with being a sort of a, a seminal moment in sort of a shift in filmmaking as we were talking about this is also a seminal moment in the shifting shifting criticism mm-hmm. um the new york times uh bosley crowther who we've read a lot of reviews from for older movies this is sort of the end for him yeah. you know and and he writes about this movie um he says it's a cheap piece of uh slapstick bald-faced excuse me bald-faced slapstick comedy that treats the hideous uh, depredations of the sleazy moronic pair as though they were full of fun and frolic so he's just like he is just not getting it uh or at least that ends up being the read on him is that he's not getting it well well kale is um she's right this is a freelance piece she's writing for the new yorker so this is this is kind of the beginning of Pauline Kale as a critic and an end of Bosley Crowther as a critic. Uh, and it's, this seems like, and for the Harris book talks about this, like this is where um, people kind of put their flags in the ground in terms of like, what do you think about this? And what does that, what does that say about you? Yeah. And he, and he never lets up. I mean, I mean, I mean, Crowther wrote two or three reviews of this film. I mean, it was, it was like a campaign. Uh, and so, uh, and so Kale opens her review with, how do you make a good movie in this country without being jumped on? And, and even though she never mentions Crowther by name, you know exactly, that's exactly what's going on. And she also talks, this is another really interesting thing, thing about Kale, and that is that she's really concerned that critics not, even though she's an influential critic herself, she, she has a kind of egalitarian streak. Um, when she was a reviewer, she actually would not go review a film uh, until it actually opened. She actually wanted to go in and experience the film with the audience. And she often used the first person plural, we and us. And she talks about the, and again, it's a, it's, a, it's a slight, it's a swipe at Crowder. She talks about the idea that obviously there are some people who think that maybe they're, they should be able to lay down the law on what a good film is or what a good film isn't. Now, of course, she has a very clear idea about what those things are, but she doesn't think she's enforcing the law. She thinks she's actually revealing the way it actually is or the way that it, sh- that it should be. So it's very interesting, again, to see that the film becomes a, a, the film becomes a site for a really seismic shift in, in American film criticism, as, yeah. as you already said. 
I think the the line I have the line from her. She says, "Too many people, including some movie reviewers, want the law to take over the job of movie criticism. Perhaps what they really want is for their own criticism to have the force of law." Yeah. <laughs> um, but then she goes on in that same paragraph. I mean, earlier in that paragraph, she talks about. Um, uh people having the unalienable right to be untalented so she says it's not it's not okay because this film is great it's okay because it has to be okay like 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 pen can be you can be using violence to make particular statements and things like that but she says like people can also use violence to sell tickets like you like we don't get to decide when it's okay and when it's not okay you know um so, so, but, but then she goes on to think about um, people who are critical of of um, depicting violence in a movie like this, and and she talks a lot about that juxtaposition of comedy and violence, like you're talking about, um, as like, well, is this is this going to lead people to be violent? And she says, part of the power of art lies in showing us what we are not capable of. Mm-hmm. We see that killers are not a different breed but are us without the insight and understanding or self-control that works of art strengthen. The tragedy of Macbeth is in the fall from nobility to, from nobility to horror. The comic tragedy of Bonnie and Clyde is that although you can't fall far from the bottom, you can still reach the same horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of that same paragraph, she says uh, in a film we see, and this, this is goes to your, the thing about the bank manager getting shot through the window um, while he's holding onto the car in a film, we see a frightened man wantonly, take the life of another it does not encourage us to do the same any more than seeing an ivory hunter shoot an elephant makes us want to shoot one mm-hmm. it may be on the con it may on the contrary so sensitize us that we get a pang in our in the gut if we accidentally step on a moth so so she's saying like uh actually this violence makes and, and it's true like like i watch this and this is about clyde being horrified by like when he when what's great about that scene is when he shoots the the bank manager holding onto his car the next scene is him being so upset at at cw for creating the situation where that had to happen he's basically saying you you turned me into a killer um and again the 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 real comedy of that is cw going to get a better getting a real parking spot instead of double parking is the thing that sets up this and then there is this sense where um, kind of like in Gun Crazy, this this movie has a series of like points of no return. It's like as long as I'm just a, a bank robber and a stick up man, it's like I don't mean to hurt anybody. It's just the, you know he would just say, well, it's just these tough times that we're in, right? Even when the when that butcher goes after him, he's like, why did he do that? I wasn't trying to hurt him, but he tried to hurt me and he put me in that. Clyde is constantly blaming other people for his own use of violence as well. That that I, I, yes, I love the fact that he didn't want to double park, and that leads to a man being killed. I want to I want to go back to the to the quote you read from Kale though, because and this is something I've often felt uh, in in teaching literature as well that there's a sense in which we want to claim those of us who love literature and films, we want to claim that it won't lead people to do bad things, but it will lead them to do good things. So I was thinking, for example, about our conversation a couple weeks ago about Tokyo Story. And talking about, you know, how seeing that film was was affecting, especially, you know, you talked about then having dinner with your parents. And so, you know, as a humanist, I look at that and I say, See, yeah, that's great. You know, art can move people to do good things. But then I want to turn around and say, yeah, but it's not going to move them to do to do bad things. So it's it's an argument I myself make, but I realize there's a certain illogicality to it, because if you want to argue that art has an influence, um, you should be able to argue, you have to be able to accept the idea that it might have influenced both malign uh, and, and beneficial, uh, which doesn't mean I don't, I don't, it doesn't mean I, I disagree with Kale, but I realize that sometimes we walk a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a, of a line there. Yeah, but I think what I mean what Kale is. I think the word "may" is doing a lot of work there. She's just saying it's not automatic that seeing violence will make you do violence. She's saying sure. seeing seeing violence may make you horrified by violence. Right, right. Um, no, I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, I realize that. I think it, it, yeah, it depends on exactly how the art is constructed. So I also want to mention back to your uh, question about what 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 made this groundbreaking. In, in a sense, what what the film does in taking on violence and in depicting violence a little more explicitly than has happened in, in the past. And this is, and I don't know, I don't know who, I don't remember if I either ever either knew, ever knew who won the argument about shooting it in color or black and white. Cause I know that Beatty wanted it to be in black and white, 
Um, and he gets a little bit of that at the beginning with the vintage photographs. But I, I think the film would not have had the visceral impact that it did have if it hadn't been for the fact that it was in color and the blood was red. It makes me think of uh, Hitchcock, you know, not filming Psycho in color because he didn't want the, the blood to have that kind, of, um, that kind of effect. But in this case, I think the blood has to be red in order for it to work. But I also want to point out that, that there had been people, I don't know if you know the name um, Herschel Gordon Lewis or not, but Herschel Gordon Lewis was uh, an independent filmmaker in the 1960s who was basically credited with inventing splatter, what they called splatter gore films. He made very explicit films that did explicit violence, but of course they couldn't pass into the MPAA code or they couldn't pass the Hayes code at the time, but they were still shown at drive-ins. People could go see these. So there, there was a sense in which there was an appetite. There was an audience for films that were more explicitly violent. And in a sense that then becomes um, used in one might say a more responsible manner in Bonnie and Clyde because, you know, Herschel Gordon Lewis, he's just out to kind of gross people out. Uh, they're not very good films, but at the same time, it showed, it, it showed that films can actually have some fairly explicit content and people will still see them. Now, one of the other interesting, so there, there's, there's, there's another piece of, of uh, kind of criticism against this movie at the time, which has to do with historical accuracy. That's the other, the other piece of people are like, well, if you're going to do this, like, well, this didn't happen and this didn't happen, um, which I think is funny because this is a movie that's so much about people creating myths about themselves and about and about how how myths and and tale and um yeah myths and tall tales kind of get created um that that there would be this and, and kale, kale points at this too she's like there are plenty of like there there isn't historical movies that that don't have inaccuracy so she points to a movie like a man for all seasons and she's like that's arguably about a more important topic and there's all kinds of inaccuracies but nobody criticizes that it's like that's sort of a backdoor way of saying we don't like this movie mm. so we're gonna just we're gonna just nitpick it to death in terms of these things <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a that's a great argument that that uh, that she that she makes. Again, it's about the the inconsistency of the critics. So the critics trying to impose their own will on a movie and not really engaging with it seriously. Um, I I I really I want to get back to the celebrity thing just because I, I that I just found I I found as I I watched this a second time. Um, you know, I, the first time through, I was like, oh yeah, that seems what this is about. But then I realized how from the from the very beginning that that's that that's the thing that um that sort of that they're chasing more than anything else yeah um in the first interactions with uh with bonnie clyde is already um there's the great scene where they're in the um after the after he robs the first grocery store and they're they drive away and then they're sitting in a restaurant and she's eating a burger and he's telling her her life story and then sort of laying out like and saying you know you're better than this don't you want these things and what's interesting is is i was surprised how little this movie is about money mm. the money is is almost almost irrelevant to to what they're doing um because this movie is also about people constantly having to drop everything and run i keep thinking like well i'm sure anything that you had gotten from that last job is now left behind in joplin as you jumped into the car and go so 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 as you watch it it's increasingly you just see like this is about it's about fame or it's about chasing fame and celebrity but also about like the hollowness of that um, because they don't, they don't seem particularly happy. <laughs> um, you know, like, like, like there are, there are moments, it's almost like, like they're happy in the moment, the moment of like the getaway or something like that is when they're laughing and enjoying themselves. And then it's always a hard cut to them hiding out and, and driving each other crazy, particularly Blanche and, um, and Bonnie driving each other crazy or, or, um, Clyde and Buck driving Bonnie crazy or like, like, like just that, that sort of Barrow family driving Bonnie crazy. I think that's, I think that's another way in which the film is a little bit different from, from, from some of the classic Hollywood films, because, you know, you said at the beginning how much more there is to this film than there is to say gun crazy, right? Um, the motivation of gun crazy is, is very clear. You know, they are both, um, they're, they're both turned on by the combination of sex and violence. And even though they have some, differences with each other about how long they should keep robbing banks. 
Um, they're, they're very simpatico, and it's pretty clear why they're working together. In, in, this, in this film, it's much, um, the characterizations are much, uh, are much more complex, right? Because it seems like he, he wants to rob banks because he wants, he wants her to be ambitious. She seems to want to be with him because she wants sex. Um, he doesn't seem that, that interested in that. Um, I love that line. He says, he says, I'm not, I ain't much of a lover boy. I just never saw no percentage in it. Right. Um, you know, and then at one point she says, when we started out, I thought we were going somewhere, but this is it. We're just going, which is actually the way the film was constructed, right? It's also very, it's very episodic. Um, things just kind of keep happening. You're not sure what's going to happen next. And then the law pops up. So I, I think that it, it's almost as though this film also paves the way for Easy Rider. Because I don't know if you've watched Easy Rider recently, Sam, but there, there's no plot to Easy Rider. They, they, just, they just ride around. Um, and I think this film also, also opens up that possibility that a film can be, I won't say ex completely episodic, but certainly there isn't necessarily a sense of when's the climax going to come. I mean, you could say that after each robbery, the consequences get more and more serious. Uh, but at the same time, um, I'm thinking, well, the film could end now, or it could keep going, and it could end now, or it could keep going, or it could, could end now. So I think that the film structure, in other words, is, is repeated in the actual experience of the characters, if that makes sense. Well, and, and, and I, I like what you're saying there, and there's, there's the great moment at the, um, uh, the, uh, the Parker family reunion where Clyde says, I'm better at running than I, than I, even than I am at robbing banks. And you're like, yeah, that's the thing you do is run. And, and the mom basically says, Clyde Barrow, I think you better keep running. Like when, when, when he says, oh, you know, we're going to, we're going to settle down and we, and Bonnie couldn't stand to live for, you know, more than four miles from you. And I mean, it's heartbreaking. The mother says, if you live four miles from me, you'll be dead. I think you just better keep running. And it's like you realize like that is actually what this movie is about. It's about running. It's it's not about I mean, they they're robbing banks to sustain the running, but it's it's mostly just about the running. And that, that by the way, is a very new wavish scene, uh, right? Because the, the 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 mother in that scene is actually one of the townspeople who came out to watch the scene being shot. And they just press her in the service as as, as the mother. But I also will say um, that that's one of the scenes that. Uh, that Pauline Kael kind of takes to, to task as not being very successful because it's sort of kind of romanticized. And one of the things I want to say about Pauline Kael and, and, and film criticism is that um, Kael did not do thumbs up, thumbs down by and large. You know, even if she liked the film, she, she has a lot of critical things to say mm -hmm. about this film. She doesn't particularly like Faye Dunaway's acting. Uh, she's not really impressed by Warren Beatty. There's other things that she thinks don't really work very well. And so I think that's also what's interesting about this film as a film to respond to is it also um, it, it, it engenders a complex response and not a simple thumbs up, thumbs down, which is sort of what Bosley Crowther represented. Sure. Do you do you have feelings about that uh, family reunion scene? Because I read that I read her part of that and it's like I get what she's saying, but. I don't know I, that I agree that it's not effective. No, I disagree with her. I I I, th I think it's a really interesting film, a, a really interesting scene, and I think that it's it's a very deliberate effort to both romanticize and elegize what's happening. And I think the scene's absolutely important because of the dialogue with the mother, because that just that just kind of sets you up for you know it's coming, but it really sets up the the tra the tragedy of their, of their death. Uh, and again, that's the thing the film play. The, the, that's the thing the film. Uh, does is on the one hand you have these these kids sort of uh, that you laugh at, but at the same time they're heading for this for this kind of horrible tragedy. And even though they brought it on themselves, you still have these complex feelings about well, it's too bad it had to end that way, but it couldn't end any other way. But you can't simply say well they were really bad and they deserved it, or they were really good and they didn't deserve it because you, you have mixed feelings about them. And that's another way in which they're different from earlier uh, earlier criminals. Yeah, to me, the character that I'm I'm so interested in is Bonnie, um, mm. because she gets she gets swept up at the beginning because I think that Clyde reads her right pretty like I think the scene where they're sitting in that restaurant and he tells her her story, I think he basically nailed it. It's just like like he not only laid out her present but laid out her future for her, and then he gave her he gave her a door out of it. Um, I also just need to say about that scene. 
that hamburger she's eating looks amazing. I, I both times I, I watched, it, I was like, that looks great. It's just like, it's a very plain thing, but sometimes food and movies. Oh, anyway. Um, so, but what's interesting is Clyde doesn't seem to have a plan or necessarily a fixed dream for where he's going. I really do think it is just like keep running, but Bonnie, if you pay attention to her, she is she's very conflicted i think about what she wants mm. um i think it's interesting when they go when when um when buck rents the house in joplin and then once the guy leaves and they all pour in you notice um you notice blanche goes through the kitchen and is just like oh there's a there's a uh like a, an actual refrigerator and she's just like in lo- she points out every domestic thing about that house and bonnie is the exact opposite and it's just like okay i don't so there's a point where it's like well bonnie doesn't want that but then you know clyde is selling her on you know I, when he's selling her mother on this sort of domestic future it's sort of like He's kind of like you can see Bonnie potentially interested in that. And then the heartbreaking scene is when when uh, towards the end, when when Clyde says, uh, you know, talks about wanting to marry her. And she asks, like, if we could start over fresh, what would you do? And Clyde said Clyde thinks for a second and says, well, I we are we live in a different state than where we did our jobs. And there is just this realization to her of like. Oh, this is all he is. Mm. All of this other stuff that he says, and he loves to make promises about this and that. And and like my heart broke at that moment because what I love is you don't get to hear her thoughts, but you know her answer to that question is very different than his. It would be like, oh, if we could just start clean, what if we whatever her dream, she actually has a dream that's not expressed there. Um, and, and, and I, th- I just think, I think the way that that plays out is really great because it is, it does sort of point again to the sort of emptiness of this particular chain, um, our chase of cele- of this particular kind of celebrity. It's like, she's the one who writes the poem that's basically mm-hmm. says, we're going to die. We're I mean, mm-hmm. not, not just, we're going to die, but like our death is coming soon. <laughs> and she's uh, the, the whole thing with the Gene Wilder character, when he says he's an undertaker. And she immediately is like, okay, out. Like, like she is seeing the omens of death coming. Um, and and she's thinking about another life. And I think it's interesting because I don't know that Clyde is capable of that thought. I'm glad you mentioned the Gene Wilder. Uh, I'll, I'll go back to Bonnie in a minute, but I'm glad you mentioned Gene Wilder. This, is, of course, is Gene Wilder's film debut. Um, he was in uh, The Producers later the same year. But um, one of the things I love about that scene is, again, I know that it sounds like a broken record, but I can't think of any previous gangster or crime film that would have a scene like the car scene where, where they pick them up and you think, oh, my gosh, they're going to do something really bad. But instead, they get drive through. And, uh, and then Buck gets to tell that really bad joke again. And, and, and the whole thing is like, Oh, now we're all friends now. And I, and I start thinking, well, what is this? Is this like Stockholm Stockholm syndrome? Are they going to start but instant Stockholm them? syndrome? Right. Yeah. And then, and then, next thing you know, they're out. They they put them on the side of the road. They don't shoot them. You know, they don't do anything bad to them. They just put them by the side of the road, and and the the tone just changes like that. But I I, I want to go back to Bonnie because one of the things that is remarkable along the lines of what you were saying about being interested in her is the film opens with her as a caged bird. Right, the film the film starts with her, and you get this extreme close up uh, at the at the head of the bed, and it looks like she's in in custom kind of a jail, uh, and she's not wearing any clothes, and she's hot, and she's bothered, uh, and and then you know you we haven't talked about how plausible this is one of your concerns often, Sam. How plausible is this immediate connection between the two of them, right? But it gets it gets set up so beautifully because you can see that she is just somebody just waiting to bust out. And then she looks out the window and she, she knows immediately what he's up to, right? And he's trying to steal her mother's car. And I just, I just think that that's, I think the film is resting on the premise that she just needs to go, even though she doesn't know where she's going to go. And he's the guy that's going to take her there, even if it becomes kind of disillusioning by the end. Well, in another heartbreaking moment in, uh, again, I, my second watch through was just for some reason, all through the eyes of Bonnie is, in those opening scenes, you know, he's telling her like, you don't want this basic life. Like you're special, you're different. And I'm going to help you get there. And then there is the scene when they're divvying up the, the, the money from the, the one uh, bank job Mm. and where there's the debate about whether Blanche gets a share or not. 
Yeah. And when Bonnie walks away, what Clyde says to her is what makes you so special. Mm. And it's just this moment of like, that's the moment where I, 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 I just like, I want to pull her aside and be like, did you hear that? What are you thinking now? Like, cause we, and it's, it's, again, it's what I love about this movie is we don't get to see it, but that, that line lands like a hammer because he's constantly telling her like, I'm with you. Cause you're different. You're special. You want, you want this, you want this. Um, and then, and then when, when it comes to, you know, to this other thing, he's like, what makes you so special? Why, you know, why are you different? And it's like, because you've told me I'm special this whole time. You told me I'm different this whole time. Um, another thing with the celebrity that I, it's a, it's a small moment that I really love is um, during one of the escape moments when they're driving away and getting chased by multiple cars. It's after it. I think it's actually after that bank robbery, they keep cutting away to like the, the the policeman or security guard getting interviewed and getting his picture taken. And he's smiling as he's saying, I stared, you know, death right in the face. And the, the farmer who, who, who Clyde told to keep his money was like, you know, he did right by me and I'll, and I'll send a, a big bunch of flowers to their funeral. So I love just even how mixed that is of like, well, these guys are going to get caught and killed, but they did. He did right by me. Like I, th- that the celebrity thing is, how seductive that is that it's that Clyde is saying things like, Oh, they make all this stuff up in the paper because they just want to make themselves look big. Mm -hmm. But it's like, we're actually seeing them also making themselves look big and like, like also mugging for the camera and things like that. Like uh, that's again, where I feel like this is tapped into, I mean, I wasn't alive in 1967. I don't know what the culture was like, but man, does it feel like right now? Um, you know, yeah. in terms of uh, your the kind of 15 minutes of fame thing, you know, uh, that the Andy Warhol idea, like like that, it's you see it creeping into the lives of other people as well. And then what's interesting is when we get to the end, the great sin, according to CW's father. Well, there's two great sins, the tattoo and that CW doesn't get his name in the paper with everybody else. <laughs> You know, like it's that it's not about there because they are cutting him in. He gets an equal share of the money. They're cutting him into all of that. But it's like you don't get to be famous like they do. And not only that, you seem like you're a sycophant or like a like a super fan of theirs or like you carry their bags or something, you know, that, you know, that, that you're not you're not sort of on on equal footing with them. Uh, in terms of the celebrity, that that is actually the big sin that leads leads to the betrayal, right? It's not about the money. It's about the celebrity. And I love the way that the betrayal doesn't come from within the gang, right? The, the betrayal comes kind of out of, out, of, out, of, out of left field. So it's, you know, it's uh, necessary for the genre, right? You have to have some kind of betrayal like that. But they do, they do it with such a wonderful twist to it at the same time. Um. <sighs> Are there other things you want to talk about? I mean, I have a list of like moments I love from this movie, but are there other like specific things you want to talk about with this film? Well, I, I actually, I want to go back to one more point that Pauline Kael makes. Uh, she says uh, at one point, our best movies have always made entertainment out of the anti-heroism of American life. Uh, and I like that way, the way that we, uh, some of our movies turn anti-heroes into, into heroes. Uh, and, but she also says, interestingly enough, that one of the reasons why we do this with Bonnie and Clyde is we also, we, we like to think that they are innocent compared to us, which is kind of an interesting perspective to have on them. Um, the other thing I want to point out, just because I like to think a little bit about some of the other technical things, I already mentioned the editing in the film, but uh, the, the, the film got two of its nine Academy Award nominations, and uh, one was for the Best Supporting Actress, Stella Parsons, um, but it also got Best Cinematography. Uh, we mentioned the idea that it was in in uh, in color rather than black and white. The cinematographer is a uh, a very good DP named uh, uh, Burnett Guffey, who won best cinematographer for uh, for a while. The Academy did black and white versus color, and he won for black and white in uh, when he uh, for from here to eternity, and he was nominated three other times as well. So it's interesting. The film was a combination of those who had never done these things before, including the costume designer and the editor. And then some really experienced hands like Arthur Penn and, and, and Burnett uh, Guffey. So it's kind of appropriate as this film is kind of this transition from the old to the new Hollywood that it has a kind of a, a mixed cast of people behind the scenes. Yeah. And I will say this is a this is a great looking film. Um, there's a particular shot that jumped out at me if we're talking about the cinematographer of um, when when Bonnie runs away and they're 
they're she's running through the field and they're chasing after her and you finally catch her in the running through the field and when Clyde finally sees her Mm. and the camera starts kind of at eye level and then I mean, it must be a some sort of crane shot that pulls up, so you can. And it it's like pulls up and widens out, so you see the field, and they're very small in the field. Him chasing after her, um, is like that shot just looks amazing. Um, all of the like kind of small town and like, and but then also like the rural setting stuff. I I, I think is uh, is is really great. Um, so this movie got five acting nominations, which mm-hmm. is kind of astounding. Um, so you get both Beatty and Dunaway for leads. You get Estelle Parsons and you get Hackman and um, uh, Pollard all, mm-hmm. all get, uh, or they, they both get supporting nominations. I think it's funny that, um, that Estelle Parsons is the one who wins, wins an acting Oscar for this because, if you had told me one person wins an Oscar for this movie, I would not have picked no. her. Um, I think that's, is that, is that maybe just more telling to 1967? Do you think? Cause I yeah, think, I, I think almost all those other performances are great. Yeah. And I, I forget, I forget who else was nominated in her category. So I can tell you the others, for example, you know, um, uh, Beatty didn't, Beatty didn't get best actor because Rod Steiger got it for in the heat of the night. And uh, Dunaway didn't get Best Actress because Catherine Hepburn got it for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um, George Kennedy got Best Supporting Actor. I think often when you have two supporting actors in the same film, they, they split the vote. They split yeah. the vote. But, I don't, but I don't remember who the other supporting actresses were that yeah. Stella Parsons was up against. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because I, I mean, another just really fun thing of this movie is seeing a, a, a we haven't mentioned Gene Hackman is, right. is in this movie. And he's uh, he's kind of this weird bolt of energy that comes in about halfway through the movie and um, and and attaches himself to the uh, to the 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 Barrow, uh, the Barrow gang quest for fame. Like he's he's I love when he um, the one bank robbery we see him part of. I think he uh, he's the one who announces we're the Barrow gang. He goes up to a security guard and says, I'm Buck Barrow. And then as they're walking out, he says, we're the Barrow boys. So there is this sense of like, just so it's clear, I'm here. Here's who we are. And then and then he's the one you see reading the paper. And he's so delighted when he gets to reading his name in the paper. Um, and I just think, I think that's, I think he's so good in this movie. Uh, and so different than, you know, what I when I think of like, I, th- I first met Gene Hackman probably when I saw Hoosiers when it came out. You know, like it's, this is a very different, uh, a very different version of Hackman than than that, or than you see in like The Conversation or uh, French Connection or things like that. You know, it kind of takes me all the way back to one of our early films more than two years ago, Sam, and that is Her Brother, Where Art Thou, uh, and 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 Babyface Nelson. Mm, and, yes. And, and the scene, when the scene when he's in the bank and she and the old woman whispers, "Babyface," he says, "Don't call me that." But, but he's got the same kind of attachment to celebrity as well. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Um, I, I guess I, I just, I just kind of want to go back to, to one other comment that uh, Kale makes. I think she captures this so well. She says, Bonnie and Clyde shows the fun in crime, but uses it to making comedy out of the banality and conventionality of that fun. What looks ludicrous in this movie isn't, nearly ludicrous and after we have laughed at ignorance and helplessness and emptiness and stupidity and idiotic deviltry the laughs keep sticking in our throats because what's funny isn't only funny and i think she does that to me really kind of captures what we've been talking about all along about the way this film um you can't completely classify it yes it's a comedy yes it's a tragedy yes it's a caper film yes it's almost a satire an american an American celebrity. So I just think that Kale was incredibly perceptive, I think, to, to see that at the time. Yeah, and I think, I, absolutely. And I think that becomes such a big thing that we see uh, later in film. So we talked, you mentioned earlier a film like Pulp Fiction. You know, I think about the scenes of like, uh, you know, before they go, before um, uh, uh, Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta go into the room and, and shoot up that room full of, uh, young men who were working with with their boss like they have this long conversation about foot massages and it's just like it's like this 
and it's the same thing where it's this funny dialogue scene and then it's an, a hard cut to and they even say i think let's put on our game faces before they knock on the door or no let's get into characters what they say you know and it's yeah. like yep so we're this and we're this uh and and i think i can just see that you can see the dna of 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 though a movie like that that i really love in something like this um i would just say if you haven't, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen this movie, like, and especially if you like me were just like, oh, I think I get it. And the big thing about it is it's like super violent and that made it groundbreaking. So to me, it felt like it was going to be homework. And I had so much fun watching this movie and it's really affecting. And, uh, and I, and I really, I, I really think this is not a movie that glorifies violence at all. Like it, 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 you know, but so it's interesting to hear any kind of, any kind of criticism like that. Like this is, this is such a critique of, of violence and the, I mean, and the overuse of even like watching them get gunned down. It's like after they're dead, you just keep hearing those machine guns keep going and they're just tearing the car apart. And you're just like, they're dead. You can stop, you know? Um, And that, and that's part of the Vietnam, I think connection too, is like, you know, this, this, this sense of like this, you know, overuse of power to try to do things like that. And I think whenever, when Clyde says to, to Hamer, um, uh, why are you chasing after us when you should be protecting the poor people? It's like, you you have this power and force and you're using it against us rather mm-hmm. than like, maybe you have another job you should be doing. So I, this is just a, a phenomenal movie. Um, so Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this. What do you have for us for next week? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna revisit the uh, the theme of the connection between the French New Wave and what's happening in American films. So we t- we talked earlier about and we we've talked earlier about gun crazy having an influence on Godard and Breathless. And one thing we didn't talk about this week, I think we alluded to it last week, is that um, uh, Newman and Benton, the authors of the screenplay, were kind of modeling what they were doing on New Wave. And in fact, they offered the opportunity to direct this film to both Godard uh, and, and Truffaut. Um, Godard wanted to direct it in the winter in New Jersey, uh, which didn't seem to fit very well. Um, so what I want to do is I want to go to the other kind of big New Wave director at the beginning of New Wave, which is Francois Truffaut, and watch his film Shoot the Piano Player which in turn became an influence on, on the film we just watched. Uh, there's a line, there's a, there's a direct connect. Arthur Penn was influenced by watching Shoot the Piano Player when he shot Bonnie and Clyde. So we're going to go back to this idea that the American films influenced Shoot the Piano Player, which is Truffaut's version of a, of a noir, but then that in turn came back to influence American films. So Shoot the Piano Player uh, next week. Fantastic. I can't wait. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film uh, and for having this conversation. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. If you want to read a great book where this movie is at the core of it, uh, uh, Thomas Harris's uh, Pictures at a Revolution, phenomenal read about a, about a really pivotal moment uh, in filmmaking. That's all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Shoot the Piano Player in the Video Store. Mm-hmm.